A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast from the art newspaper in which I talk to artists about their influences from writers to musicians, filmmakers and of course other artists and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Stanley Whitney, whose abstract paintings feature interlocking rectangles, squares and bands of paint whose intense colours hum with musical resonance and rhythm. Rigorously structured, yet full of improvisation and unexpected incident, Stanley's paintings are both arresting and slow-burning. They grab you with their bold hues and hold you with their complex harmonies and dissonances, their sense of constant movement. He's particularly known for his square format paintings of the past two decades but his career has been a lifelong search for a distinctive form of painting, one that, as he said, is defiantly abstract, yet contains the complexity of the world. Stanley was born in Philadelphia in 1946 and grew up not far from there in Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. Today, he lives between Bridgehampton in New York and Parma in Italy, where he spends his summers. His art education was varied. He studied briefly at Columbus College of Art and Design in Ohio before moving to the Kansas City Art Institute in Missouri and then completing his studies in New York City in 1968, a period in which he was taught by Philip Guston, as we'll hear. He gained an MFA from Yale School of Art in 1972. He said that the two decades after he graduated from Yale were difficult for a painter of any kind, but especially one so committed to abstraction, as conceptual art, minimalism and post-minimalism dominated the 1970s, and then a particular kind of painting, influenced either by the heroic figuration of the past or by street art, gained prominence in the 1980s. He's also said that he was at odds with the dominance of theory and politics in art of that period, and the expectation that an African-American artist should be preoccupied with its exploring race and cultural identity. As a result, as Stanley says, he got to paint undisturbed between 1970 and 1990. In that time, he also had significant encounters with other artists, first in an art delivery company with fellow artist Al Taylor, through which he met and spent much time with Robert Rauschenberg, among others, and second as a teacher at Tyler School of Art and Architecture at Temple University in Philadelphia, where he would continue to teach until 2006. But he made important strides in his art during this time, for instance with the on Mylar drawings of the late 1970s and the constellation paintings he began around the same time. These featured what Stanley has called balls of colour across the canvas, punctuated with loose and energetic marks, which grew in ambition when, after a long period using acrylic paints, he returned to oils in paintings like Portrait of a Dream from 1983 and Sixteen Songs from 1984. The constellation paintings grew sparer and bolder until he reached his next major breakthrough. That came as a result of trips to Rome and then Egypt in the 1990s, as we'll hear. The paintings that resulted from these travels, like By Whatever Means Necessary from 1992, added more structure, partly inspired by Roman architecture, so that the balls of paint sat between strips and lines of colour in a series of densely stacked horizontal bands of various widths. Over the next decade, Stanley continued to hone his compositions and the paintings grew steadily more rectilinear than curvilinear, without losing any of their lyrical feel and touch. The culmination of this process of refinement 
came in 2002 with the first of the square format paintings for which he's now best known and which he continues to make today. With these canvases, he maintains the stacking of the previous period, but with less expressionist and more even handling of the paint as rectangles and squares of single colours jostle with each other in arrangements that emphasise rhythm and melody. For all the joyous and alluring exuberance of some colours, their precise mood is difficult to pin down. As the late critic for The New Yorker, Peter Sheldahl, put it, eye candy at first glance, Whitney's work unclenches bluesy gravitas. And it's this balance between seduction and complexity with which I began our conversation. In a talk with Stanley, his former student, the artist Trenton Doyle Hancock, said that Stanley would say that the painting had to get ugly before it gets beautiful, and that if you go straight for the beautiful, what you're doing is going straight for the pretty. So the painting has to get to the point where it's almost lost and unbearable before it can become something that you can even begin to think about as beautiful. So, I asked Stanley, what happens in that process? I mean, I sort of understand what that is. When you said that, I'm, I'm sort of thinking about painting in the studio and what that is. When you're working, you sort of lost and find things, you know? So you're sort of like lost in the process and um, not really sure what you find. You know, even when I paint, I'm not too sure where I am. And even when I'm done, I'm not too sure whether it's good or bad or, <laughs> or beautiful or what it is, you know? So it's sort of like you can, you can make it and then seeing it is, is a whole other thing you know, seeing what you've done, you know, because you're so part of it at the time that you have a hard time really seeing it. Yeah. You know, you're sort of feeling it more than seeing it. And does, do you have to live with a painting once you think it's finished for quite a while to absolutely know that it's finished? Yeah, I, I mean, I know it's finished. It's, it's whether it's good or not. Because <laughs> <laughs> you're trying to paint something that you haven't seen before, you know what I mean? I mean, you have a sense of it because of the structure of it. But how it exists or what it is or whether it feels right, you know, you're always painting, so you're always thinking, like, I could do this or I could do that, but something tells you to stop there, and you don't quite know whether that's the right decision or not. So then once you stop, then it takes me, you know, at least a week or so to look at the painting to really see it, you know what I mean? But if I have a neutral person come in and look at it, and they can say, oh, that's really great. And then I can say, oh, okay, let me, maybe it is. And then I, I look at it decide myself. But usually it takes a while to see it. There's another thing that I thought was really interesting that you said, that for a period you worked in black and white, and you said to give it real intellect. You know, as a young artist, I always knew I could make things better with the color. But what kind of color and have color be subject matter? So uh, I worked in black and white as to get an idea of getting the color in the right space. Yeah. So that was more about the challenge of where things exist in space. So that's why I worked in black and white. The black and white really came out of looking at Van Gogh's drawings. Yes. And uh, thinking how colorful they were, you know, and, and how interesting they were in terms of black and white. I thought he made these drawings in terms of color, but black and white, just by the different kind of mark making and, you know, the pen and ink. So uh, at the time, I didn't know what my paintings were or what they would be. I sort of knew what I didn't want to paint, but I didn't know what I was wanted to paint. Right. I, didn't, I didn't want to paint figures anymore. I didn't want to paint landscapes. So I said, what was the subject matter? So I was trying to struggle with my subject matter. And I 
was this book of Van Gogh. You know, one thing of my generation have to say is we were the generation that were the first ones who really had all those great art books. You know, like really big, thick, total books of Van Gogh, all of Van Gogh's work. Or, right. You know, we were the generation that got the postcards, you know what I mean? And the art books, and uh, that was a big thing. Uh, you could follow artists that way and see everything. Mm-hmm. So I got this big book on Van Gogh, all his drawings, and uh, figured out how I started making these drawings in pen and ink. Pen and ink, that way I couldn't erase anything. Put a mark down, it wouldn't go away, mm. and had to deal with it. So that was a big thing in finding out, working on where things exist in space. And of course, when you use colour, the spatial relationships are really intriguing because you insist on no colour dominating. So there's this sort of democratic balance between colours. Nobody can look at your paintings and say, oh, the red one or the blue one or whatever. It's significant that no hue dominates, in other words. And it seems to me that that must be really hard. Because they want to dominate, don't they? They're really insistent, these colours. That must be an incredible struggle to a certain degree. Well, uh, it's not a struggle for me. I mean, I, maybe early on it was. And, you know, it was, early on it was very hard to get to the colour. Right. You know what I mean? I, it was hard for me to really get to the colour. I had to really work on space and that idea before I get to the colour. So I had these paintings early on. Like I think I, there's a lot in the show that maybe have two or three colours. It's mostly mark-making. It was also getting, you know... Painting really is about paint, you know. So I was really getting an idea of what paint is for you, you know, paint. That's a big thing. Like I come out of really the French school, you know, and so you're really thinking about paint. In fact, I was just in Paris, and there was a Van Gogh show of his late work. Mm. And I've seen a lot of these works before, but this time I was looking, and I thought, wow, the quality of the paint was so fabulous. I mean, the subtleties of the colors, like a light green or maybe a tint of a yellow-brown. And the, and the intensity of the color, whoever made that paint, because the big thing was when paint came in tubes, you could make these paintings, you know? Yeah. It wasn't about mixing in your studio. It was like he could go out and have these tubes of paint. And I tell you, whoever made that paint, it was, it's, it, it's still it's great paint. <laughs> so early on, it was, really, it was really a struggle with, you know, what is paint and how I want to paint and how thick it is or how thin it is. So you had all these things like that, and then you have what you say, like the color. When I got to the color, uh, once I figured out my space, where things were in space, and then I figured out that space is in the color, because I kept thinking about space, but then when I started thinking about, no, the space is in the color, not space, then color. That was a big thing for me. You know, it's funny about painting. I think about Mondrian and think about how long it took him to make the, the black line red or blue or yellow, you know what I mean? I mean, years before we could actually mentally have that line not be a black line. And it's a simple physical thing. So there's funny simple physical things that are very hard mentally. Right. So um, making the color so that no color gets in the way that's equally balanced, all that. But I paint it in New York, and in New York, you know, it's, it's this grid kind of city, you know, and there's like uh, very clear how to get around New York in terms of until you go to Queens, and then it's, <laughs> then it's 45th Street and 45th Avenue, <laughs> 45th Road. <laughs> but Manhattan's very simple. Yeah, but but it's interesting that because I know that you sort of slightly resist the idea of, of these paintings as grids as such. I don't think of them as grids. Yeah. Uh, I don't. Uh, you know, 
For me, it's like I always think about the ancient world in terms of those things. I mean, you know, the idea of stacking came out of my stay in in Italy and also going to Egypt, Mm -hmm. you know, and seeing how things were stacked. So it sort of comes out of of the ancient world. That didn't come to me out of, say, like Judd and that, you know, although Judd did those stacks. That didn't inform me so much. It really was, you know, even looking at ceramics, you know, and pottery and things in, in Greece and more of the ancient world. It was more me traveling the ancient world when I was living in Italy and going to Egypt and Turkey and Greece and everywhere the Romans went, and really seeing that work, that really Etruscans. When I started thinking about stacking, I was at Etruscan Museum. Yeah. That's when it came to me. So it wasn't sort of like, you know, early on like that. But there is a really nice analogy I know that you've made in the past with New York in the sense that there's a certain order, but then... There's chaos. There's madness. Yeah, yeah, that's a great thing about New York. There's just, it's on this grid, but it's just madness. Even now, I'm not living in New York. I'm living out, you know, in Long Island. And when, and then when I was living in New York, I rode my bike around everywhere in New York. You know what I mean? Now I've been out living there only a couple, two, three years. I come back, I ride around the bike, and it's just madness. You know what I mean? It's like things are coming at you every way. You know, you have to worry about doors opening up so you don't get doored. You have to worry about all the people on... There were messengers and food people now and motorized bike cup every which way. It's like in London, you have to look the opposite way, you know, one or two ways. <laughs> in Manhattan, you have to look everywhere, you know, things are coming at you in every direction. So it's really quite interesting kind of New York American kind of madness. Yeah, you know? yeah. And in a way, the paintings of yours, there is this sort of a really productive tension, it seems to me, between this idea that there is a structure, you can visibly see a structure, right. and yet there's something unnameable. And that seems to me that unnameable thing is really crucial a kind of poetry i guess yes definitely 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 because you know uh, actually the structure gives me a lot of freedom yeah that structure gives me all the freedom i need in terms of um everything else you know it's everything else is real important you know yeah so it's you know kind of like a house you can have an apartment it's all the same but then you go in everyone's apartment's totally different by you know the furniture they pick or everything they choose what's on the wall so it's like that Yeah. You talked about drawings and about how drawings helped you work out the space. But I know that you've also said that drawing helps you to think on paper and the thinking side of it is really crucial, right? So drawing is absolutely part of your practice. Everyone thinks of me, it's the colour, but drawing's the key. I always have the colour somewhere. Drawing's the key, I think. You know, figuring out what drawing is and and thinking on paper, yeah. When I first got to New York, you know, in 68... And downtown, you know, that scene and seeing everyone's work and trying to figure out where I fit into this crazy New York school of painting, you didn't see much drawing. The one artist who I always still think about is Bryce Martin because Bryce drew a lot. I mean, you wouldn't yeah. necessarily see that by those early paintings, you know, those really tough paintings he made, it very hard to make, but he drew a lot. And the whole thing it was, I had to figure out what was drawing for me. I mean, because it wasn't anymore about being in school, drawing the model, drawing a still life, drawing a landscape. So I did spend years trying to figure out, you know, what drawing was, to reinvent drawing. I think every artist, you know, a painter, I think, has to really, if they're going to do something, they have to really think about what is drawing and reinvent it. Yeah, so drawing was the big key. Right. I think it's the key for me. And in terms of that sort of working out, I know you said that that period between about 1970 and 1990 was kind of a period where you got to paint undisturbed I think is the term that you used and it seems to me that the working out that you had in that period it must have been really hard to be an artist in that period and keep plowing on but it seems to me that so much of 
your development as an artist happened in that period and it, in a way it was helpful even if it probably didn't feel like that at the time no yeah you're absolutely right it was half it was awful <laughs> <laughs> downright awful but and, and now in the long run yeah in the long run it really worked out i mean i tried to have dealers over and show me my work and try to get shows and i mean i really wanted to but it didn't really happen but you know one thing i liked about being in new york i could see a lot of art at the time i was living downtown the art world had moved from 57th Street uptown to Soho. When I first got there, you would spend every Saturday on 57th Street going from gallery to gallery looking at everything. But I moved downtown, I, could, I was living in what's now Tribeca, and I had my studio up on Cooper Square, and I'd uh, walk through Soho to the galleries, and I'd get to my studio, and I would say, okay, you see what they like, you see what they're doing, you see what's fashionable, and um, you could do that, or do you want to keep doing this? And I would say, I, I want to keep doing this. That was my choice, you know. I liked what I was getting close to or what I was thinking about. So it was difficult, you know, in terms of that. I mean, I had to teach a lot. I had to, one point, I, my MasterCard was from art supplies was really high. Right. But I got through it. I, and it, it was difficult, but it was really, you know, a good time, if I think about it now. But if I think about something like the Kooning early on, you know, that work, there's one here at the museum here, early de Kooning, that you see you worked and worked and worked on. That's just fabulous, you know, just fabulous. So, I mean, I think it's a really important time, I think. But in those days, you could do that. I mean, my loft was cheap, you know, everything was pretty cheap still. So I could do that. I feel sorry for artists now if they can't do that, you know. Yeah. Because I was seeing a lot of art and making a lot of art, you know. I mean, I was throwing a lot of art away, but I was making a lot of art. So it took me a long time to figure it out. Yes, it did. I wanted to pick up on something that you'd said, which I thought was really interesting, because when I talk to other people about your work, they talk about this incredible instant power it has and the sort of allure that it has. But I, I love this idea also that you've referred to them or you want them to be sit down paintings, that is paintings that you need to invest time in. And I really like this idea that in a sense, they grab you, but they've got to hold you as well, right? Yeah, I, I always think about people living with things. So the idea is paintings are really are meant to be lived with. You know, and, and people do stop me sometimes, you know, and say, oh, I love your painting, you know, I, I see it every day, every time I see it, it's different. I thought about that, about Cezanne, you know, when I was early on, it, it, that every time I looked at them, they seemed different. You know, I, I just seemed, this painting that seemed, you know, totally still, but every time I looked at it, I, it was something different. So the idea of, of things that you really live with, that, that inform you in terms of your, you know, your thoughts, you know, and help you to... Get through life, see life, see things differently, you know, a place to mentally wander. Yeah. You know. And it's interesting, I spoke to Kathleen, the curator of your Buffalo AKG show, ahead of talking to you. And she said that there was this interesting thing about the lenders to the exhibition and that she's used to people not wanting to be separated from the work for security issues, for not wanting works to be damaged. But when she spoke to the private collectors who were lending works to this show, she said that they were like bereft at losing your works from their walls because they played such a central part in their lives that they brought light into the room. No, I, you know, I, I love that. I do. I love that. I, I mean, it's probably bad for the show, but, but I thought fantastic. I mean, probably not good for Kathleen or, or probably for me. I mean, one painting I did, I did get, I, I sent the woman roses to get a painting, uh, but yeah, I thought that was really fabulous that people, you know, really loved them so much. They meant so much to them in their lives that they didn't want to, you know, live without them. So I, I thought that was really quite special. I mean, I think about that, I think it's really fantastic. Yeah. You know, although we got good work, 
But probably the other work we could have gotten to. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, that's a great that's a great sort of special thing. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to say I'm happy about that. I'm happy about it, but not happy about it. When I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests now. Okay. Who was the first artist whose work you loved? Well, the first, I would say, painter was Cezanne. Yeah. I was going to school in Columbus, Ohio, Columbus College of Art and Design, 1964. And uh, the museum had a Cezanne painting, and that painting really, I was just knocked out. Because I went to school and think I'd be a designer or, you know, maybe an illustrator, make a lot of, as a poor kid, make some money. I thought, uh, you know, you don't really know at that age. But I saw the Cezanne painting, and that, that was it. Yeah. And that's the painting of Mr. Choquet. He's sitting down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. sitting down. Because I, I was just shocked by the rhythm of it. It reminded me of music and also the fact that the floor or the wall was maybe more interesting than the guy sitting there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Everything in the painting was alive. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It wasn't just the figure, you know? So I, I was really shocked by that. And I know this wasn't the first artist that you loved full stop, but I know that Morris Lewis was the first abstract painter that you said that, that really grabbed you and, and offered you a way out of the figurative paintings that you were making very, very yeah, early on. Yeah, he, he didn't offer me a way out, but it was, he grabbed me and I didn't know, I didn't know what to do. Uh, <laughs> when I saw those paintings, I really liked those paintings. But with that work, you know, some of that work is so absolute. You know, it's like looking at a Barnett Newman or... Hmm. You know, even looking at a, you know, maybe a late Mondrian. I mean, you can make that, but that's it. And that's theirs. So, but yeah, but I loved how open they were. I loved the color. I just, I, yeah, it just was a, you know, epiphany in seeing that work. But then I was lost for about 10 years. Right. Know, after that. <laughs> it's interesting that I know that around that time you, you moved to acrylic paint. And it was, in a way, moving back to oil was the way out of that impasse, the way out of that period where you didn't know what to do with it, if you like. Yeah, because I, you know, when I moved to New York, everyone was using acrylic paint, and it was also cheap. Right. You know, I mean, you could buy a quart or a gallon of acrylic paint. It was easier to manipulate with water than, you know, with oil paint. It was easier to manipulate. And everyone was painting with acrylic paint. You know, I mean, you know, everyone you saw in the galleries, whether it was, you know, Nolan or or, you know, Stella, or any of them who was painting were using acrylic paint. I mean, you had, you know, de Kooning that was still, hmm. you know, painting in oil, but this new generation of painters and, and the color field people were using acrylic. I mean, Hans Hoffman was painting in oil. So acrylic seemed like a really way out, and it was really, I could buy it by the quart or the gallon, hmm. you know what I mean? Yeah. It was easy to manipulate with water that wasn't like the turpentine, you know, mm-hmm. or, or fire hazard, or... So, yeah, it seemed really good. But the more I worked with it, the more it became plastic. Yeah. You know, and, and I thought I can't do anything with it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I suppose one of the key things, it seems to me, about the colour in your work is about how the colour changes through touch or handling, right? So, yeah, well, and, and well, does, does oil allow you, because it has that greater flexibility, it's less plasticky in a way you yes, get, you yeah, can, you, yeah, the touch yeah. is even more important with oil than it might be with acrylic in a way. Yes, yes. Oil is really from the dirt, you know, from the earth, you know what I mean? So it really has that ability to to be, you know, really an earthly kind of medium, you know what I mean? So, yeah, thin or thick or whatever, it has more life to it, you know. So, um, yeah, I switched back to oil. I made some prints, printmaking, I did some prints mm. and um, with like litho ink, monoprints, and I got, I got a lot of different kind of effects that I really liked. And I realized then I could go back to oil. So I went back to oil. 
Which historical artist do you turn to the most today? You know, here I am in Buffalo, I have to say Clifford Still. I'm looking at the Clifford Still show, which is pretty incredible. Oh, right. So who I, I always love Clifford Still. So I can take Clifford Still today. But if you ask me tomorrow, maybe someone else. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about, because I love this painter. You said that of the Venetian masters, the painter that you loved the most was Veronese. And I, and I oh, love yeah, Veronese too. Yeah, Tell yeah. me about, about what it is from in his work that you love in particular. Well, I think he's a master draftsman, and I love the color. He's a really great colorist, you mm. know what I mean? Uh, even even if he goes to grays or pinks or whatever, but, you know, or you know, there's this great Veronese painting in the Prado, this figure, lay, I, you know, I don't know what Venus or whatever, but there's a guy mm. laying down in the woman's lap, and oh, yeah. he's this huge figure. I mean, if he got up, he'd be huge. But the big thing about it is it's the whole, whole, he's wearing this sort of orange, you know, outfit. You know, I, I don't know if it was what uniform or something but this beautiful orange or you know and he'll go from a beautiful orange to a beautiful emerald green you know what i mean so the color the color of veronese i think is amazing that's one thing about veronese is the color yeah it's, it's that ability to command so many colors across the surface at once right yeah it's just that yeah. incredible yeah. balance yeah at yeah. one time i was in, i was in venice and um there was a small veronese show that had been cleaned, and they they were supposed to go on the ceiling, you know, these oval paintings mm. for the ceiling, and they had them down on these big easels, wow. and you could see them up close, and they were fabulous. You know, even you could see the, how they were painted, you know what I mean? And the brush marks, it was a fabulous, great colorist. You know, and a great draftsman, great colorist. I love that you said that you love Goya's red sashes, and, and I, I know exactly what you mean by that. <laughs> yeah, I think they love Goya because Goya could paint all that beautiful, you know, silks and fabrics and, you know, diamonds and everything else the rich wore. He was just really great with paint. I mean, I, it's funny. If I sit at home now, I'm living out on the island, at this fireplace and see the fire, I think Goya could paint a great fire. Yeah. No, he was really great with the paint. I mean, Goya was, with the paint, he was just fabulous with the paint, whether it was a metal you know, or, or silk tights, you know. And then the colour is unbelievable, yeah. I wanted to ask you at this point about Philip Guston because I know that you knew Philip Guston. In fact, he was a real early supporter of your work, picked you out of one of, as one of two people in a crit situation where he picked you and one other painter out and said, you're the painters here, you know. That must have been quite something meeting him at that point. Well, it was because I was totally lost. I had just stopped painting figurative and know what I was going to do, and I wasn't even painting. I couldn't even figure out what to paint. I was just drawing, and I was in the summer program. So all of a sudden I was drawing outside, drawing landscape, which I had never done before. And this is 1968, right? Yeah, yeah. And so it was interesting because at that time, you know, Gustin wasn't someone people thought much. I mean, I'd say not much of, but he wasn't like the first tier of like what you thought the abstract expressionist. Yeah. And he wasn't, you didn't see much Gustin paintings at that time. And he he wasn't really showing, but you thought you knew his work, and he was in the midst of change. I didn't realize that. So he would tell me things, and I would go, what? I mean, like, he, I always tell the story, he'd say, why don't you go downtown and draw downtown? Why don't you draw that car? And I would think, what? Because I thought he was an abstract painter, and I was going from figurative to abstraction. Yeah, he was very important to me and showing me how a painting was made, you know, how it was put together. I was always wanting to get to New York. I always wanted to be in New York. I wasn't in New York for a long time because of the war, Vietnam War. I'd beaten the draft, being in school. And so he really got me back to New York. He was a very important mentor for me at that time of my work. Yeah. I didn't even know to what extent until later, you know, how important he was. I love that, as you pointed out, he was engaged in a struggle 
at the same time as you at that point. And, and I love this thing that uh, you would sort of talk to him about your, your own struggle. And he would say, I don't want to hear it. Just go paint. Oh <laughs> yeah. No, he would not. If, if I had a bad, if I had a bad day in the studio and he came in, he wouldn't even come in. He would say, I'll see you next week. <laughs> I, if I was doing him in the studio, I was, didn't know what I was doing, you know, and he, he would come in to see me. I remember one time he came in to see me and I, I had a bad week. Something a bad day, bad week. Well, I, then I realized later on, I realized you don't have bad days. But anyway, at that point, I thought I had bad days. And so he came in the door and he would see me and he would say, I'll come back next week. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Yeah. I also wanted to ask briefly about the fact that you and Barclay Hendricks knew each other because there's this wonderful painting by Barclay Hendricks of you um, called Stanley. Yeah, yeah. That was at Yale in 1972, 71, 72. And at that time, the graduate school was very small. There was maybe 20 painters, first class, second class, like, you know, 10 in each class. And Barclay had a studio, like, two doors down from me. But he was, he, even Barclay at that point was doing very well. He, I mean, he wasn't selling for a lot of money, but he was selling his paintings. And he was living more like this kind of, like, you know, kind of this real kind of quiet bourgeois life in a way, middle class kind of life, making these paintings. And he was pretty successful. I mean, he wasn't, like, making a lot of money, but he... He had some land in Virginia. He seemed very content. And I'm feeling, I was struggling. I had a real, I was having a real <laughs> hard time. I was really struggling. What am I painting? What am I doing? I was painting with a mop. I was just, not, didn't know what to do. And uh, he asked if I would model for him, you know. And he, and he paid me. And I said, sure, I'll do it. You know what I mean? So that's how it came about. Yeah, and that relaxedness is actually a lovely factor in his painting of that period and that one of you as well, isn't it? There's a there's a kind of ease about it, which yeah, is, he really, which well, the painting he really, is he really, want, he really wanted to paint the community, you know what I mean? He, mm. and, he, and Barclay always took a lot of photographs. He always went everywhere with, with a camera. I mean, it'd be interesting to show all his photography with his paintings. Yeah. He did a lot of photography. And he thought it was quite a kind of bohemian black character. You know, I wasn't someone sort of like the black bourgeoisie really... <laughs> would like me so much. I was a little little wilder. And uh, <laughs> so he really wanted to paint me. He he always said, like, I want to paint you, I want to paint you. And I was like, oh, no. But finally I said, sure, sure, sure. But, uh, yeah, he knew his subject matter, which I didn't. You know, he was very clear about, you know, who he was and what he wanted to paint. I was really jealous of that. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? Well, right now I'm thinking a lot about Bryce Martin. Bryce just passed. But I think a lot about Bryce Martin in terms of his whole career, you know, where he started, where he ended with his paintings. And I'm really fascinated by that in terms of the very dense paintings. The last paintings are really sort of these line. It's quite amazing how, how he got the drawing into the paintings. So I'm thinking a lot about Bryce. I know that that wonderful series of works he did called Cold Mountain were important to you. Is that right? Those wonderful trailing lines. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. That, that's a big breakthrough from the early work. But I, I think his transitions from the early work, the middle work, the real dense work, mm. those paintings that are very difficult to make to paintings that are maybe physically more easy, he can make them. Because, you know, as you get older, you know, sort of what you can do physically in painting and what you can do, because you change, you know. I mean, yeah. you know, like me, if I had these big canvases, I used to be able to move around myself very easily. Now it's like I want someone to help me. Yeah. I, just physical things, you know, in the studio. I find that interesting in terms of his whole, from the early work to the late work and where he ended up and how he fed the work and how the work grew and developed and changed and the quality of the work all the way through. And what fed the work. So I think that's a big thing, because once you have something, you have to feed it, you know, otherwise it's going to die on you. So um, I'm very interested in that. 
I wanted to ask you about G's Bend Quilts and their relationship to your work, because it's something that's mentioned, but I'd like to explore a bit more. How directly are you responding to those quilts? Because they're such wonderful things and they thankfully now have a prominence. Well, I have a book of those. I have a book I have always have open to one of the, one of the quilts that's really fantastic. Oh. It's, uh, it's one that's more like, you know, blocks and it's more like, you know, I think it's red and black and uh, green. Well, I love them because it's order and no order. You know, it's not yes. it's not really Western, you know. It's really, you know, a lot of it is like Central African or West African intellect. And um, hmm. it's African intellectuals and um, something that people don't really sort of acknowledge so much. And so I think, and these women are making them, you know what I mean? They're not really educated in terms of the Western world so much, but they, but they have this really beautiful intellectual sense to space and, and putting it together that's just quite amazing because you know people said oh well look you know you have Barnett Newman people who acknowledge mm-hmm. what he did you know and then you have these quilts that are pretty you know fabulous you know in terms of art making and where did that come from how they do that who are these people you know what I mean they're, they're living in shacks you know what I mean there's no money they're, they're not educated you know they can't read or write uh, that well or something you know so how can they be intellectuals so it's the art making. So it's, it's quite amazing. Yeah, they're really brilliant people. Brilliant art, brilliant people. I want to ask you about a, an amazing collaboration, which actually began in Rome, and there was an exhibition in Vienna with David Hammonds. And I know you two were, have forged a really close relationship because that's, in a way, your practices are very diverse. You know, they're, they're very distinctive and different from one another. But there was this collaborative moment. So tell me about that. Well, I ended up going to Rome uh, to teach and get out of New York. You know, I was teaching at a Temple University in Philadelphia. They had a school in Rome. And uh, so I decided to, just to get out of New York because nothing was happening for me in New York too much. I'd been there a long time. I got, I, I mean, that's probably by the 90s. I got New York 68 and not much was happening. Mm. Although I saw a lot of work, so I, I, it was a very important time for me seeing work and meeting a lot of artists. But I, I didn't really fit in. I didn't know where I fit in. And... I began the show, but nothing was happening. So I got offered this job in Rome, and David was going to the academy. People were beginning to acknowledge him because he was like the king of alternative spaces, you know what I mean? Yeah. But he was just being acknowledged. So in Rome, we really became quite close. So in terms of our, our work, it looked different, but mentally and how we thought about things and how we got involved with things, we were very similar. So we became great friends. So we decided to do a show together in Naples, I think it was 94. And then I did a show with him, Quiet as Kept. It was a very special time, David and I. Great conversations. He picked my brain constantly about painting. Cause I think he found me fascinating because he didn't think the way I thought made sense in terms of my paintings, you know. Oh. Uh, anyway, it was a really great, great time. I mean, I don't see David now too much, and I, I, I miss him dearly because... At that time, we were really, really close. It was a great, great time in my life hanging out with David Hammonds. I mean, I knew Rauschenberg pretty well in the 70s, Yeah, uh, hanging out with Bob. And I thought, I thought Rauschenberg was one of the smartest people I ever met. And when I met David, I, I thought the same thing. I thought he was one of the smartest people I ever met. You know, just brilliant. Uh, we would travel together. You know, if, if he did a show, I'd go with him. We'd walk the streets all night talking. You know, it was fantastic, you know, uh, that time.
A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the arts and culture app. The free app offers access to more than 350 cultural organisations through a single download, with new guides being added regularly. Recent additions to the app include Mars House and BIPOC Art Studio in Southampton, New York, and Manx National Heritage on the Isle of Man off the Scottish coast. Among the guides on Bloomberg Connects is the Studio Museum in Harlem, where Stanley Whitney had his first solo show in a museum in New York in 2015. If you download the guide to the Studio Museum, you can explore the latest in the museum's artist-in-residence exhibitions called And Ever an Edge. On the guide, you can find video and audio interviews with the artists in the exhibition. Because the Studio Museum is closed as it prepares to open its new building on 125th Street, the exhibition is staged in another New York museum on Bloomberg Connects, MoMA PS1. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, X formerly known as Twitter and Instagram. What do you have pinned to the studio wall? Oh, a lot of things. Everything. <laughs> All kinds of postcards, because I'm from that generation, postcards, you name it, Picasso, Matisse, I don't know, everything. Yeah. I mean, anything, a show I went to see, you know. Yeah. I don't have as much stuff as I used to have. I used to have a wall just full of stuff, which uh, which was really... Crazy. If you, if you came to my studios in the 70s, 80s, you'd walk in, the walls were covered with everything. <laughs> and then I'd have a painting, and people couldn't even get to the painting. <laughs> I, you know, I would have drawings up with all kinds of postcards, little things, big I mean, yeah. So I have everything. So now I still have a lot of things. I have books out, you know, whether it's Matisse, Cezanne, watercolors. There's actually some lovely photographs of your studio, and I noticed that one of them has woman in blue that amazing matisse in the philadelphia museum oh yeah it's a great painting and i I wondered if if that was something you came across as a young man because obviously you're you know you're from near philadelphia no because you know i i I was from a poor family i never went in that museum right i was in philadelphia this is how how much i didn't know about art living outside of philadelphia a small little town little, little black community and i went to school in columbus ohio i found this little art school in columbus ohio so i beat the draft didn't have a degree at that point. Then I, Kansas City offered me a, a place there. They had a, a BFA. So I went to Kansas City. I get to Kansas City. People say, oh, you're from Philadelphia. Have you ever been to the Barnes? I said, what's that? You know what I mean? I had no idea what it was. Uh, I had never known that, you know, the Cezanne bathers was in Philip Museum. I mean, I keep thinking, if I had seen that when I was 10 or 12, I don't know, maybe my life would have been different. <laughs> Uh, but I, so I know I, I really had no idea. So really, I had to backtrack. You know, I mean, I, I had no idea what I was doing really early on. The most important thing was being in school, being in art school, thinking I could make something of myself there. Because that's a great painting, you know. And it's really mm. right out of Ang, you know. You think of Ang's one with the blue dress. Yeah. So yeah, he he reinvents that, you know. So it's just really fantastic. Yeah, Matisse is very important to me. I got to Matisse late because I couldn't figure out how could something be so simple and be so great. You know what I mean? Early on, I was much more into like Soutine or something. You know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. Soutine seemed more like a drug addict to me, you know? So I thought, <laughs> oh, I'm more into Soutine. <laughs> <laughs> but you had to really grapple with Matisse for this show that you did at Baltimore recently where you were working with stained glass. And Well, that was something, you know, Baltimore asked me to do these these uh, windows. They were opening up a study hall for Matisse because Matisse mm. thought Baltimore was going to be his American museum. And I guess maybe at that point it was. I mean, he had, they have a lot of stuff because the Cone sisters bought a lot and they're from Baltimore. Mm. So they asked, me, they asked me to do these stained glass windows. 
that were in the hallway to go into the study place. So that was something I, I would look forward to. And I always, you know, Dance With Me, Henry, that's an old song, probably from the 40s, you know. I don't know if people would know that. Dance With Me, Henry, All Right, Baby. <laughs> so I just always sang it all the time. So I just called call it Dance With Me, Henry, you know. So I thought it was really a funny, funny little thing. But if you're, if you're probably from the 40s or the 50s, you might know that song, you know, Dance With Me, Henry. <laughs> so I always thought that was really funny, you know, and... Um, so yeah, that was really that was really quite nice to be able to do something with Matisse because I never thought I I would do something with Matisse. And the windows came out great. I mean, the windows came out better than I thought. I mean, it's really funny because my studio manager and Paget is really funny. So windows get done, we're going to see them and installing them. And I always have a hard time with everything I do because I think oh it's not very good. I can make it better. She said, "Look, Stanley, everyone liked this project. Everyone's real excited about this project. Go in there, you know." like these things don't give them a hard time <laughs> i go in and i go i i love them i love them i was like wow i couldn't believe they came out so well i mean the windows are really really fantastic if i go to baltimore i go see those windows i, I mean even, I'm, I'm impressed with those windows <laughs> well, that's so nice that's great yeah 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 which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently Probably the Met, because the Met has everything. You know what I mean? If I yeah. go to the Met, they have everything. The Met, I think, is the best museum in New York because they can go from modern to ancient world. So that's the Met. The Met's the best. I mean, I, the modern now is, is too big and too corporate for me in terms of, you know, people, place to go, tourist place. So it's the Met, but the Met's so big and the Met has, you know, if you look at African work, you look at in anything you want to look at there, they have. So, and they can write down to, they had a Cecily Brown show there, mm. you know, a few months ago. So it's a contemporary painting. So I think the Met's capable of being a lot of things. So I think the Met. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? I think when I went and lived in Rome, that was a big thing. I mean, I traveled in Europe before, but when I lived in Rome for those four or five years and was able to travel, you know, more to the east and... That probably was it. You know, that was a big thing. Because, you know, traveling one thing, living there is something else. So I think when I went to live in Rome, that probably was the biggest thing. And there's this body of work that you produced almost directly in response to that kind of epiphany that you had there. You talked about that sort of ancient element. It was the architecture in particular, wasn't it, that really got well, you? Well, it was the architecture, but it was very important. that I traveled across America before that. Mm-hmm. So the Southwest and seeing that, you know, which you really... You know, because even my wife, who's a painter, Marina Adams, uh, mm. she wasn't going to Clifford still. But then when she traveled across to America, she said, oh, we got to San, San Francisco, I, where I was going. She said, oh, I get Clifford still now. Right. Uh, so I, I say that because I think it was very important that I was in America seeing all that space and such a big, huge country and, and traveling across it and then going to Rome. I think both things were very important to me. Because then I really got to Rome where it was really about architecture, light, color. Because, mm-hmm. then, you know, when you're there in Rome, you know, if you're in the sun, it's one temperature and you cross over the shadow, it's another temperature. Yeah. You really see that with, you know, with Caravaggio, how he used that Roman light. Mm. So um, both things, I think, it was the fact that I did that and then went to Rome and got involved with the ancient world. Yeah. And then once I was in Rome, you know, being at the Colosseum or the Pantheon, and looking at those, you know, calm, thinking of, you know, the 12, 15 tons, mm. but then going on to Egypt. And then that was, a, that was really the big thing. You talked about that visit to Egypt and how that made you kind of conceptualize density. And I love that. You know, you yeah, think- yeah. You know, it's sort of like making a recipe. And I got the last piece of the recipe in Egypt uh, when I realized density. 
and what density was, and the fact that, that the space was in the color. Not putting color on space, but the space was in the color. Which writers or poets do you return to? I think Paul Zalon right now. I'm reading a lot of him. I read him a lot. A friend of mine, Norma Cole, uh, at San Francisco. Mm. Walt Whitman a lot. Langton Hughes I read. I mean, I, I read different poets. You know, I have a lot of poetry in the studio, so sometimes I, I, I go through the poetry. Sometimes, sometimes it informs me. I get good titles from that. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> but is it right also that you read sort of as the paintings are drying almost? There's, there's, there's these pauses. Yeah, well, yeah. It, takes a, it takes a while for the paintings to dry. It's about a week, so I spend a week. That's where I'm drawing a lot and reading a lot. I'm reading all the time. So uh, right now I'm reading a great book on Miles Davis. Hmm. You know, I read, a lot, I read a lot of different kinds of things, but poetry is a big part of it. When I was out in California, I stayed with a poet, you know, at extra rooms. So I stayed with Norma Cole, poet in San Francisco, and I got to meet a lot of poets and go to a lot of poetry readings. So when I came back to New York, after that, I, you know, went to a lot of poetry readings. There's a great painting of yours that's named after a Rilke poem, which is called Dance the Orange. There is just a wonderfully powerful quality to that and that's one of those examples where you've quoted from a poem directly in the work and I wondered were you thinking of Rilke or is it just something you had written down in a sketchbook and thought ah no it was something I've written down in the sketchbook right. you know because I you know I keep a lot of, of sketchbooks writing things down some I don't write I don't write where I got them I just write things down but yeah Dance the Orange yeah that was the, the show at City Museum in Harlem yeah that's a great title really Dance the Orange yeah <laughs> And Stay Songs is that particular series of poems about you by Norma Cole. Yeah, and I have a whole series of paintings that call Stay Song. I think I'm up to 130-something in those. You mentioned Miles Davis earlier on, and I know music is tremendously important to you. What music or other audio do you listen to when you're in the studio? Well, everyone knows I listen to Bridges Brew. I still listen to that. I yeah. still do. That's about it. By the time that album's over, I'm done painting. I'm cleaning my brushes. <laughs> but that, I still listen to that when I paint. Why that album? Why that more than kind of blue? Or <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. It just gets me in rhythm. It just gets me going. It just feels right to me. I, it doesn't make any people know about it or not, you know, because, I mean... When I was teaching in Rome, and I had a studio in the school, they gave me a, a studio, and it wasn't the same floor as the students by the studio. And I would tell people, don't, well, if you, I'm in my studio painting, don't bother me, don't knock on my yeah. door, don't bother me. But like, the marina always say, everyone knew you were painting the because you paid Bridget through. <laughs> everyone in the whole school could hear it. So, so they knew not to bother me. But um, I don't know why. It's just going... I mean, when you're painting, you should have become the music. Mm. You don't, you're not really listening. You're kind of, you are the music. And when I'm not painting, of course, I listen to a lot of different other things, but that particular album that Miles did, it just makes sense. I love the fact that when you saw that Cezanne painting that you were talking about in Columbus, it made you think about Charlie Parker. Yeah, yeah, it did. Tell me what was it in the Cezanne? Because, of course, they're, you know, culturally miles apart. But It was just the rhythms. It was just, just the way it moved. I thought it was just, I don't know why. I mean, I was, I was shocked. I mean, but, you know, for me, the music was part of me early on. I grew up in a family in Philadelphia, you know, in this small black community, and music was everything. I mean, you know, you went to school, but you came home after school, and you listened to music and practiced your dance step. Yeah. That was more important than doing your homework. <laughs> Uh, so music was always there. You know, in my house, the radio in those days, 
You went to bed with the radio on, you woke up with the radio on. You know what I mean? So you had music your whole night, you were sleeping. You know what I mean? So the music was always a big part. I mean, I knew clubs in New York. I didn't know about the Met or the Museum of Modern Art or museums, but I knew all the downtown clubs, whether it was Slugs or, you know, Birdland. Birdland was over by the time I got there. But, you know, I knew all the clubs to go to, you know, Five Spot, you know. Yeah. So I knew all that. So the music was really the key for me. The music was where I first identified myself. Yeah. So when I saw the Cezanne painting, because I went to school to be a, a designer, really, I thought, when I saw the Cezanne painting, I was I was totally shocked by it. I thought, what? This seems like music to me, you know? Yeah, there's a painting of yours called Mingus, and I know that you saw Charlie Mingus at the Village Vanguard, and you even sort of followed him over the street and, and to where he went to the coffee house. I, yeah, I sat at a... And I sat beside him. I never, I didn't say a word to him because he was such a nasty guy. <laughs> I, just, I thought he was. And I just sat beside him. I didn't say a word. I just sat. Be, I was just thrilled to sit beside him, trying to absorb his greatness via osmosis. <laughs> yeah, because Mingus, you know, he went everywhere in the music. He went to blues. He went to he went to everything. Mingus is very. It's an interesting artist, I think. Mingus, mm. you know what he is. Very different to the Miles Davis, but interesting artist in terms of. His, revolutionary work, things he did. He wrote a book, I think it was called, but I read it, I, I should get it again. But yeah, he was a very great artist. You know, those guys, whether it was Arnett Coleman or uh, Mingus, Miles Davis, it wasn't even just their music, it's how they really carried themselves, how they thought of themselves, how they engaged in the world was the key, like, mentor for me, you know, in terms of how I carried yeah. myself, you know what I mean? But you never wanted to be a musician yourself. It was, it, it was always about somehow aspiring to that no, condition. Yeah. No, You know, when I first go to New York, I'd go, a lot of musicians would go up to New York, I'd go to hear music. i hang out with these musicians. They'd go all night, and I'd want to go home to bed. They would say, like, <laughs> let's go here. And I would think, I want to go home. I want to go to bed. I mean, they're just going around following the sound wherever it takes them. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like 2, 3 in the morning. I'd be, I want to go home. I mean, I paint in the day. I don't paint at night. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought I liked that life and take that life, but I couldn't do that life. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? You know, I think it's always real interesting for every artist how they get in the studio. Mm. I always think about the day I'm going to paint and what day I'm going to paint. You know what I mean? And why I'm painting that day. I, usually, I would paint in the morning because when I had a job, I had to paint at night. So I love, I love getting up and going and paint in the morning. You know, Rosenberg used to make everything, you know, nice and neat, you know, on the table. Make it. it depends on who you are. How, how, it's how you get in the studio. Yeah. yeah. And you paint in bowls, is that right? So you arrange your paints in bowls. You know, when I was painting in acrylic, I used to mix the painting in uh, paper, uh, sort of like bowls. Uh, or I used to have a cat. I used the cat food can to mix the paint in. <laughs> well, so we were going to go to Italy, to move to Italy for three or four years. I kept saving all the cat food cans. <laughs> And so I had a trash bag full of cat food cat I could take with me to Italy because the cat had died. <laughs> and then I came to my senses and I thought, Stanley, you can't take this, cat, this thing of cat food cat to Italy with you. And then I bought these cheap sort of salad food yeah. uh, bowls. You, you know, they look like wood, but they're not wood. Yeah. And I, I, I started using those. Yeah. Because when I worked in the palette, I couldn't mix enough paint. Right. So I got these little bowls. So that's how I did it. And is it right that you always make a painting at the end of the day using up all the paint that's left in the bowls? Yeah, those are the state song paintings. Yeah. Right. I yeah, that's what those okay. are. Yeah. Okay. Because I had paint left in the bowls and I think, well, I'll, I'll do, you know, a painting in the day. 
And did, do you notice any difference between those paintings and the paintings that you'd make at other times? In the sense, is there something less self-conscious about those paintings in any way? Or Sometimes they're the better paintings because that's, by that time I'm really in rhythm. <laughs> yeah. Actually, the other day I painted, and I painted this painting with 80 by 100 inches, and then I did a painting 24 by 24 inches, and then I had some paint left out. I made a 12 by 12 painting. <laughs> and the 12 by 12 painting was the best painting I made that day. <laughs> That's great. So you never know where the painting is going to come. I mean, sometimes I'm so relaxed by that time, and I'm just like, I'm just in the right space that I can do that. And um, and that painting, I, I hardly even had much paint left. I hardly touched the canvas. And the, what the paint is, what the touch is, what the color is, was just beautiful. And I, you know, in fact, I'm keeping that painting because <laughs> uh, they don't come along that much. So here I was trying to make this gorgeous. You know, big painting, you know, and the 12 by 12, that's really it. You never know when they come or how they come or when they're going to come. You're sort of in control and out of control at the same time. Yeah. Somehow it's more like time and space are just not what you think, you know. And lastly, what is art for? It kind of opens up your life to possibilities of what it is to be human, I think. You know, it's like what it is to be human. You know, there's so many questions about what it is to be human. And I think that's what art is, you know. It really opens that door and allows you to really embrace and think and just what it is to be a human being. Stanley, thank you so much for joining us. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks. Stanley Whitney, How High the Moon, is at the Buffalo AKG Art Museum in Buffalo in the US from the 9th of February to the 27th of May. It then travels to the Walker Art Centre in Minneapolis from the 14th of November until the 16th of March next year. And then it's at the Institute of Contemporary Art in Boston from the 17th of April 2025 to the 1st of September. Stanley Whitney, Dear Paris, is at Gagosian in Paris until the 28th of February this year. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our sister podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every week. And please subscribe to The Art Newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. We're on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Tan Audio, and on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads. Production, editing, and sound design on A Brush With by David Clack, and the producer is Lewis Jeb. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway. A big thank you to Stanley Whitney. We'll see you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.